0: Hello, everybody. It's, it's really a great honor and a pleasure to invite you to the, or to welcome you, I should say, to the last non-musical event of this year's LSE Literary Festival, uh, which is a talk by and a conversation with Elif Shafak. Uh, Elif, as I'm sure you all know, is an award-winning novelist and by far the most widely read, read writer in Turkey today. Uh, critics have hailed her as one of the most distinctive voices in contemporary Turkish and world literature. I think it's notable that her work has been translated into far more than 30 languages. Elif has been honored as a Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters. Uh, Elif has published 11 books, I think, eight of which are novels. Her uh, first novel, uh, Pinyan the Mystic, was awarded the Rumi Prize in Turkey in 1998, Uh, much, much more recently after many more successful books, Elif's second novel written in English, The Bastard of of Istanbul, was the best-selling book of 2006 in Turkey and was long-listed in the UK for the Orange Prize. Uh, One of my ex-students, who I think is in the room tonight, told me yesterday how much he liked this book Mm -hmm. and its fantastic caricatures. Alif followed this with The Forty Rules of Love, which to date has sold more than 600,000 copies. If you're an academic, if you sell more than 1,000, you feel that you're doing quite well. (laughs) Uh, And I'm very happy to say that her latest novel, Honour, is available for sale here tonight outside, ahead of its release date in the UK, which is set for April. Now, in addition to writing fiction, Alif holds a master's degree in gender and women's studies and a PhD in political science. Um, she writes very widely in the critical press, including in Habertürk, a major newspaper in Turkey, as well as for several international daily and weekly publications, including the LA Times, the New York Times, and the Guardian online. And I note that you also write lyrics for rock musicians in Turkey. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, as many of you will know, Elif has been accused of insulting Turkishness in her books. And I'm sure that this among many other things has prompted her to think deeply and penetratively uh, about the relationships between writing fiction and thinking about identity or perhaps about the power of fiction. To highlight multiple and overlapping identities. And I think this came through very strongly in her Penguin special book, uh, The Happiness of Blonde People. Uh, so we're delighted that you're with us here tonight at the LSE. Uh, we're looking forward to a, a reprise of some of the arguments, at least I suppose adapted, of The Happiness of Blonde People, uh, with the bit after the colon, Angst, Imagination, and the Art of Storytelling. And what we've got planned is that. Liv's going to talk for a few minutes by way of introduction. Uh, then is going to read from her new book. And then we're going to try and be very, very democratic and open it up straight away for question and answers. So without further ado, over to you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It is, um, it's really a big, big pleasure for me to be here this evening. And I also very much look forward to, uh, to hearing your thoughts, you know, your questions, your comments, your criticism. So I would be very happy if, you know, after a while I'm going to keep my, my talk short. But after a while, if we could turn this into a dialogue together, um, rather than keeping it as a as a monologue. Now I would like to talk a little bit about um, a little bit about my background, a little bit about the new new book, and the happiness of blonde people, which was published by Penguin as an as an e-book. You know, trying to interview themes that matter to me and perhaps they can also be themes you would like to talk about later on, but feel free to ask about other subjects as well, you know, subjects that perhaps I'm not going to cover in this short talk. Um, One question that we are very used to being asked as writers is, why do we write? It's a question that, you know, we hear a lot, but to be honest, I don't think it's a question we know how to answer. We pretend to know how to answer, but oftentimes we don't. You know, it's a question that you ask yourself only if, only when you are asked this specific question because otherwise you normally don't. It's like, you know, breathing or eating. We do this all the time, but we never ask ourselves, why do I breathe? Why do I eat? You know, why do I dress up? You take it for granted. You can't think of life without doing that specific thing. It's so much part of your daily life. But then when somebody asks, you stop, and you have to ponder, you have to think, you have to analyze. Um, so this is what we do. We try to find an answer to the question, why do we write? But the question comes from outside of, and not from here. And the, the one that analyzes this question inside us is the one I call the author. The author has answers. The author does book signings. The author gives talks. The author, in fact, is a very social being. But then there's another side of us, which I call the writer, or the storyteller. And that person is very introverted, that person is very withdrawn, that person is a very different being than the author. And I think that is um, the hidden persona. So as writers, we have at least two personalities, maybe more, but we're very fragmented beings. When we're writing, oftentimes we don't know what we're doing. We don't know, at least I should speak for myself. I don't know where I'm going with the story. I don't know what's going to happen to the characters eight pages later. I have a vague feeling, you know, I have a sense, an instinct perhaps, you know, some images that I follow, but not, never, ever the whole plot or the structure in mind. But then when the book is out and when you ask questions, the author, from a distance and retrospectively, right, with hindsight, looks back and analyzes the process. Um, I find this you know gap between the writer and the and the author a bit interesting. I am perhaps interesting I, I'm interested in general in, in, in dualities, you know, in 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 fragmented cells. Part of it maybe comes from my childhood. I was raised by a, um, by a single mother. I was born in Strasbourg, to Turkish parents. Shortly afterwards, my parents got separated. And I came back to Turkey with my mother. From then on, I was raised by two women, two completely different women. My mother, you know, very secular, very westernized, very well-educated, feminist, independent. And my grandmother, the complete opposite, very irrational, very superstitious, very traditional. And I loved observing these two women. But perhaps, um, you know, rather than having just one notion of identity, you know, growing up with these two women helped me to question the notion of identity as a static thing, as a homogeneous thing. And then due to my mother's profession, around the time I was 10 or 11 years old, she became a diplomat and she started working you know, for the foreign ministry in Turkey. So she and I, we traveled a lot. Um, I was half-educated in Spain. We went to Jordan, Amman. There was a time in Germany, Cologne, Ankara. And then I came to Istanbul with a deep passion, longing for the city. I love Istanbul enormously. And then I lived in Boston, Michigan, Arizona. Back to Istanbul and now London and Istanbul and the reason why I'm saying this is because um, life has been very nomadic for me and I have started thinking about what exactly is a national identity what exactly is a religious identity what exactly is a gender identity or identity in general how do we define it is it something static pre-given unquestionable or is it more like a starting point for our journeys because I think each and every one of us we are on a journey We're changing every day, every month, we're not the same person, and we shouldn't be the same person. So our, our existence is very fluid, but identity politics is not a fluid thing, it's more static. Identity politics is based on us versus them. There's a lot of polarization in identity politics, and I don't think it's enough to understand the complexity of what it means to be a human being. It is not enough to understand the complexity of what it means to be a nomad or an immigrant, immigrant or a global soul because all of these things mean having multiple selves, multiple belongings, multiple connections. I guess, um, in short, I'm trying to say I do believe that we can have you know, lots of different kinds of love in our hearts towards different cities, different cultures, different places one of, the, one of the things that um, in, in Turkey, ultranationalism has said for, for ages well, is, you either love it or leave it. And by that they mean, you know, if you're questioning the system, the regime, it means you don't love it. If you, it means you don't love your country, then leave it. Um, but we're, we don't have to be trapped in this either or choices. We can love a country, we can love the world, We can love a city, a society, and we can also be critical of it. That doesn't mean we don't love it. Maybe just the opposite. We love it so much, we care about it so much, that we want it to improve itself, and we want to play maybe a tiny little role in it. So, um, my point is, rather than feeling trapped in this, you know, either-or choices, are you from here, are you from there, to be an individual, to remain an individual, and to believe in universal values that connect us without in- ignoring our differences, our you know cultural differences, religious differences, without assimilating those, but also believing in the possibility of creating universal values and in the possibility of coexistence and in the beauty of cosmopolitan encounters. Um, this is something that I, I'm, I'm very much interested in and in my books Usually, you will see characters coming from completely different backgrounds, uh, all of them saying different things, and the energy that they create together fascinates me. Um, so, I guess I find it sometimes hard to be labelled as, you know, as something like a postmodern writer, feminist writer, post-feminist writer, this writer or that writer. I don't believe in such labels. All I believe in is storyteller. That's the only thing I use for myself. I believe in the art of storytelling. The rest is changeable, you know? Um, And I do believe that through stories, we can understand each other better. I do believe that storytellers, or perhaps artists in general, can penetrate into those zones of our daily life that perhaps politicians don't even bother to look. Because for a novelist, the main subject is the human individual. Not masses, not generalizations, not macro-realities, but the micro-element, which is the human individual. And I can empathize with that human individual. Maybe that person is going to be an Armenian, maybe that person is going to be a Christian, maybe that person is going to be a Buddhist, doesn't matter. 17th century, 19th century, it doesn't have to be like, you know, everybody should write their own personal story. Of course, fiction is to a certain extent autobiographical, but I don't think that we should write what we know or what we have experienced. We can write even, you know, people we have never seen, places we have never been into, centuries we have never been into. We can write because storytelling is based on imagination. And I think imagination recognizes no boundaries. So these are the themes I like to deal with um, in, in my novels. When I wrote The Happiness of Boulogne People, uh, maybe I should tell you um, where, the, where the title comes from. It's, um, I think it was in the year 1997, I'm not sure about the year, but I was in Schiphol Airport uh, in Amsterdam, and I, there was this Turkish family um, waiting in front of me, this Turkish Airlines queue, and at some point the father, they had little children, the father started talking with uh, another person, and kind of complaining about their neighbor, mm-hmm their neighbor um, downstairs. He said, you know, every time the children run around, um, she calls the police, can you imagine? And then the police comes and says, we have committed a huge sin, we are so stressed out, you know, and I'm paying mortgage for this house, I don't know what to do. Um, so they're complaining, you know, they're empathizing and I'm listening, it was, it was a funny, beautiful conversation. And at some point the other guy said, You know, I never understand, how come blonde children never cry? Their children are always happy. (laughs) And I thought about this, you know, our perception of the happiness of other people. That happiness is waiting for us in another place, in another culture, and we only need to go and find it. Um, So it's a piece that deals with our perception of happiness and also our anxiety. I think we live in an age in which there's a lot of anxiety. We are very, very anxious creatures as human beings, but we like to pretend we are not. We have to, you know, look strong, we have our public personalities, public faces, but deep inside, uh, angst, you know, the fear, also another step forward. Sometimes this leads to the fear of the other. Sometimes it leads to the fear of the future, what the future is going to bring. With the financial crisis, there's also a lot of anxiety about, you know, employment, what the, what tomorrow is going to be like, and so on. But recognizing angst seems healthier to me. So I also deal with, as much as I deal with, you know, happiness and our perceptions of happiness, and how it can be a factor in in migrations, immigrations. Uh, I also look at closely at the, at the notion of anxiety in, in that um, e-book. Now, the, the book that I'm going to read uh, a bit from is, is the new novel. It's not out yet in the UK, but it was out in Turkey. Um, if you'd like, we can talk about the reception in Turkey as well. It's called Honour uh, in, in, in the English edition, um, and it's a story of a family of immigrants, half Turkish, half Kurdish in late 1970s, mostly in London. Um, there are li- different places in the, in, in, throughout the book. There's a, there's a Kurdish village, an imaginary Kurdish village. There's Istanbul. There are bits and pieces from Abu Dhabi, um, but mostly London. So I follow these routes, paths of migrations and, and movements and displacements. I'm very interested in displacement and the sense of non-belonging and trying to belong to, you know, um, to the past how memory works, how amnesia works. So these are subjects that I care about. Um, I will read from the very beginning. This is the voice of Esma, the daughter of the family. My mother died twice. I promised myself I would not let her story be forgotten, but I could never find the time or the will or the courage to write about it, that is, until recently. I don't think I will ever become a real writer and that's quite alright now. I've reached an age at which I am more at peace with my limitations and failures. But I had to tell the story, even if only to one person. I had to send it into some corner of the universe where it could float freely away from us. I owed it to Mum this freedom and I had to finish it this year before he was released from prison. In a few hours, I will take the sesame halwa off the hob, let it cool by the sink, and kiss my husband, pretending not to notice the worried look in his eyes. Then I will leave the house with my twin daughters, seven years old, four minutes apart, and drive them to a birthday party. They will quarrel on the way, and for once, I will not scold them. They will wonder if there will be a clown at the party, or better still, a magician, like Harry Houdouni, I will say. Harry who? Hoodoonie, she said, you silly. Who's that, mummy? That will hurt. A pain like a bee sting. Not much on the surface, but a growing burning within. I will realise, as I have done on so many occasions before, that they don't know anything about their family history because I have told them so little. One day, when they're ready, when I'm ready. After I've dropped off the girls, I will chat for a while with the other mothers who have shown up. I will remind the party host that one of my daughters is allergic to nuts, but since it's difficult to tell the twins apart, it is better to keep an eye on both of them and make sure neither gets any food with nuts, including the birthday cake. This is a bit unfair to my other daughter, but between siblings that does happen sometimes. The unfairness, I mean. I will then get back into my car, a red Austin Montego that my husband and I take turns driving. The journey from London to, how do you read this? Shrewsbury?
0: Shrewsbury.
1: Shrewsbury. Is three and a half hours. I, must ha- I may have to make a pit stop just before Birmingham. I will keep the radio on. That will help to chase the ghosts away, the music. There have been many times when I thought of killing him. I have made elaborate plans that involved guns, poison, or better yet, a flick knife, a poetic justice of sorts, I have also thought of forgiving him, fully and truly. In the end, I haven't achieved either. When I arrive there, I will leave the car in front of the railway station and take the five-minute walk to the grimy prison building. I will pace the street or lean against the wall across from the main entrance, waiting for him to come out. I don't know how long this will take, and I don't know how he will react when he sees me. I haven't visited him for more than a year. I used to go regularly, but as the day of his release drew closer, I just stopped. At some point, the massive door will open from inside and he will walk out. He will gaze up at the overcast sky, unused to seeing this vast expanse above his head after fourteen years of incarceration. I imagine him blinking at the daylight like a creature of the dark. In the meantime, I will stay put, counting up to ten, or one hundred, or three thousand. We won't embrace, we won't shake hands, a mutual nod, and the thinnest of greetings in small, strangulated voices. Once we get to the station, he will hop into the car. I will be surprised to see how athletic he is. He's still a young man, after all. Should he want to have a cigarette, I won't object, even though I hate the smell and don't let my husband smoke in the car or in the house. We will drive across the English countryside, passing through quiet meadows and open fields. He will inquire about my daughters. I will tell him that they're fine growing fast. He will smile, though he hasn't the slightest idea about parenthood. I won't ask him anything in return. I will have brought a cassette along to play, the greatest hits of Abba, all the songs that my mother used to hum while cooking or cleaning or sewing. Take a chance on me, Mamma Mia, Dancing Queen, the name of the game. For she will be watching us, I'm sure. Mothers don't go to heaven when they die. They get special permission from God to stay around a bit longer and watch over their children, no matter what has passed between them in their brief mortal lives. Back in London, once we reach home, I will search for a parking space, grumbling to myself. It will start to rain, tiny crystal drops. Finally, we will find a spot into which I will squeeze the car after a dozen maneuvers. I wonder if he will scoff at me for being a typical woman driver. He would have done so once. We will walk together towards the house, the street quiet and bright behind and ahead of us. For a fleeting moment we will compare our surroundings with our old home in Hackney, marvelling at how different things seem now and how time has moved forward even when we couldn't. Once inside we will take off our shoes and put on slippers. Classic charcoal for him, a pair of my husband's, and for me, burgundy slip-ons with pom-poms. His face will crumble, crumple when he, when he sees them. To put his mind at ease, I will tell him they're a present from my daughter's. He will relax, now realizing that they're not hers. The resemblance is merely coincidental. From the doorway, he will watch me make tea, which I will serve without milk, and with lots of sugar, that is, if jail hasn't changed his habits. Then I will take out the sesame halwa. We will sit together by the window with porcelain cups and plates in our hands like genteel strangers, watching it rain on the flowers in my back garden. He will compliment me on my cooking, saying how much he has missed sesame halwa, though he will politely decline another serving. I will tell him I follow my mother's recipe to the letter But it never turns out as good as hers. That will shut him up. We will lock gazes, the silence heavy in the air. Then he will excuse himself, saying that he feels tired and would like to rest, if that's all right. I will show him to his room and close the door slowly. I will leave him there, in a room in my house, neither far away nor too close. I will keep him confined within those four walls, between the hate and the love none of which I can help but feel forever trapped in a box in my heart he's my brother he a murderer so that's the, the very beginning um, of the novel it's Esma's voice. I will stop here uh, as I said I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts, your questions
0: So I think what we're going to do is just try and be very open and democratic and uh, invite questions from the audience now obviously it's prompted a number of thoughts so I'd be happy to abuse my privilege as chair, but um, this is a great opportunity now to ask Elif questions. Maybe in the front.
1: Hello again. Uh, I'm just thinking about that belonging thing to somewhere or to someone or anything. What are you thinking about belonging? It's a beautiful question, thank you. Actually, I, I um, when I think of belonging, I always think of it as, as fluid, you know, like water. Whereas when I think of identity, to me that's more static, more solid, you know? And I do believe that we can have multiple belongings. For me, belonging is a very cultural thing. You know, it's about our childhoods, the way we grow grow up, the cuisine, the folklore, the love we feel, you know, for the people. Um, I I am very much, you know, sympathetic um, towards the, the concept of belonging. As long as it's not exclusivist. The moment it becomes exclusivist, let me put it this way, the moment we start saying us is different than them, the moment we start saying us is better than them, that's something else. But of course we have deep belongings, of course we have deep love and you know emotional attachments to the places we grew up in, to the people we grew up with, right? And that's beautiful, there's beauty in that. The only thing that I am critical of is the exclusivist approach, because I don't think belonging should need to be, you know, exclusive, it can be just the opposite. Um.
2: Hi, uh, you spoke about identity politics, I wanted to ask if do you think it's important to have a political identity for a citizen that is to identify themselves with a political party based on ideologies especially in this era of catch-all
1: parties thank you it's um it's a question that also makes makes me think i mean it's very normal right to have political affiliations the parties we vote for maybe some of you will be you know interested in actively working for a party why not um but what I am more interested in is the public space, you know coexistence in the public space. And I think for that to happen, we should also be able to get out of our political affiliations, at least every now and then, you to transcend those identity politics that are given to us, because at the end of the day, this is given to us. I mean, we're born into a certain religion, we're born into a certain nation, a certain class, a certain family. We didn't do anything for this. We were born into it. What I'm more interested in in is the things we struggle for, we ourselves, you know, strive for. And that is a very transcendental experience. I I honestly think, I mean, it's, it's something that I repeat a lot, but it's something I also believe in. Um, and maybe something that I've also learned from Sufi philosophy, if we're ever going to learn anything in this world, we're going to learn from people that are different than us, that think differently than us, that dress up differently, you know, that come from different backgrounds. Otherwise someone who is exactly like me or someone who is more or less, you know, thinks like me, votes for the same party, comes from the same background, has a similar, you know, comes from the same church, the, the same mosque, whatever, that person is like my reflection in the mirror, it's like my echo, the voice of my, you know, the the echo of my voice. I'm not going to learn much or I'm not going to give much to that person, but someone who is different will challenge me, maybe I'll challenge him. So those uh, encounters among people who come from different political affiliations, from different ideological backgrounds, is something that I find very healthy and for that to happen, for that to happen in a mature way, the public space needs to be very democratic. It's, there, there needs to be democracy. So that's one value that I think we can um, all very easily you know, um, embrace together. Because where there's no democracy, no one can, can um, speak no, for themselves. No one can voice their opinions.
0: Yes, there's somebody at the back. <coughs>
2: Hi. Um, in recent years, you received the Brand Prize, um, and for me, it was a kind of shocking. And I just would like to know.
0: Sorry, couldn't quite hear you. Could you say again?
2: Yeah. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I remember, last year you received the Brand Prize, right? Th- what prize? Brand Prize from a in- conference about brands.
1: No. The- Grant, grants? Brand, but yeah. I received a grant? like uh, No, No, it was a
2: brand prize, but okay, maybe... You <laughs> brand doesn't
1: really brand. Um, no, anyway, I, I was just
2: ra- really wondering how you could accommodate you know, having this brand prize with being a writer, but okay, um, maybe you didn't heard about it. But then, there was also another... <laughs> 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 sorry, <laughs> I mean, this was also on the news, and with Google, everybody can check easily. Um, uh, Another thing is that, like, I was also shocked for this 14th of February thing. You, with Fidli Boya and Duan Books, you start kind of a, you were involved in a kind of project, and you ask for people for their love stories. And yeah, oh,
1: okay, okay. Yeah,
2: yes. um, I, I was also like, you know, um, trying to accommodate this uh, in my mind, but I just wonder, and maybe it yeah. will be nice to hear from you how and why you, you know, wanted to participate this project.
1: Yeah, just just a little Thanks. explanation. This is a um, you know in, in Turkey for Valentine's Day, right? Yeah. Um, a, a, we basically what we did is, is this is this, 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 this happened through social media, um, and with a with a private firm it supported. Um, it was a social project uh, for children uh, for school uh, basically primary school students who come from disprivileged backgrounds so all the money that was you know um, raised was going to go to these students and, and I wanted to support this project and I thought I'm a writer how can I support it well what I can do is I can say and I believe that in Turkey like many in many other parts of the world there's so many women particularly women but men also of course who want to tell their stories there's so many stories of love, but also heartbreak. You know, how are we really capable of, you know, experiencing love? Or are we constantly stopped and restricted? So are there different love stories in people's minds, people's hearts, but perhaps they never shared with anyone? And we can ask these stories, then I can choose what, some of these stories and rewrite, getting their permission. And in the meantime, so, you know, any... Um, there will be certain awareness, certain you know, charity behind this and the money, money as I said, was, was going to go to this um, primary school students and that's, that's what happened. And it was very interesting for me to see like hundreds, really, literally, maybe thousands of emails and letters have arrived, people telling us their stories, their love stories. And there was so much sadness in it. Um, it's helped me maybe to see another Turkey from a different angle. Because there were lots of stories about how they fell in love with someone from a different ethnicity, from a different religion, from a different class, from a different so-and-so, and their families kind of interfered. And they accepted that, but they have never forgotten. And they have named their child after that person. So many stories along you know, similar lines. Um, so from time to time, I do such things. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in doing, you know, work for women and children, particularly. And the only way I can do that is through stories. So, and, and I'm interested in how social media can be used for this end.
0: I'm bursting to come in, but uh, gentleman here and then a, a lady at the back.
3: Thank you, thank you for your talk. Um, I'm interested in you. You slightly touch upon these these, uh, concepts, but I would like to explore a little bit further. You talked about the universal values that that unite us and then my question is, I mean one of the questions, um, is if all is united then who is them? If we are all united who is going to be them? That is the, the following question is then how do you define these universal values? What are the universal values? Mm-hmm. Then you talked about the individuals, like the, the, the importance of the individual being. Are these individuals stand alone as singular beings or do they form themselves in being plural with others? Mm-hmm. And if, if, so, if it is so, then how would you define the individual in the universal
1: beautiful it's very challenging Thank questions you. Thank you um, there is no them you know we're all us and we're all individuals you know human beings with very similar fears with very similar anxieties very similar hopes expectations and frustrations amazingly similar um, Again, you know, I will refer to Sufi philosophy because I learned so much from it. But in Sufism, the human individual is the microcosmos, and the, the universe is the macrocosmos, which means anything and everything that's present in the universe is present inside the tiny human being, you know, each and every one of us. Now, when we approach things from this angle, then it's very difficult to say, oh well, you know, the Russians are so different than us, you know, the, the Arabs are like that, the Turks are like that. You can't make these generalizations anymore because you know deep inside how much alike we are and how each and every one of us is the mirror of the macrocosmos. It's only a matter of degrees. Some of us are more generous than others. Maybe 70%, another person is 30% generous, but nobody is 0% generous, nobody is 100% generous. Nobody is 100% wicked, nobody is 100% good-hearted. So there's, there are all these opposite elements inside us, constantly changing. Being, being an individual is an ongoing process, and I think the discovery of the self never ends. So for me, it's like a sentence that ends with three dots instead of a sentence that ends with an exclamation mark. I can't say, okay, this is who I am, just an exclamation mark. I am like under construction, you know, I'm constantly, every day, something is new, is added. We are students of lives. So to keep our minds open, to keep our hearts open, instead of saying, this is who I am and those are the others... Um, just to see the connections. Connections, is, is very, that's a very important concept for me. Empathy is an important one for me. Now, what are universal values? I think democracy is a huge universal value. Human rights, women's rights, children's rights, the right not to be abused, you know, the right not to inflict violence. Uh, to, to stay away from violence, the right to be happy—all you know, these—we can go on and on and on. But these are things that resonate with it, everyone. Just—I mean—I'm sorry—I I kept my question very uh, answered very long. But for many years, we have heard from many people. Including like experts saying, well, the Arab world was in a different world. The Middle East is a different world. People there, they don't need democracy that much, you know, or they don't need human rights that much because it's another world. So what is not good enough for the West can be okay for the for the East. There is no such thing. We all deserve the same quality of democracy. We all deserve the same quality of human rights and gender rights. So that Bon Pour you know, something that's not good here, but it might work in in Egypt, in Turkey, no such difference. In that sense, I do believe in universal human values. In that sense, I do believe that we all deserve uh, to live in uh, free societies where words are not forbidden, where thoughts are not seen as dangerous.
0: Can I just pick that up and then bring in some other <laughs> members of the audience? Because it seems to be a recurring thread in the conversation. Mm. Now, as it happens, obviously, I obviously I share most of your intuitions, but I, I'm much taken by a Bengali public intellectual called Partha Chatterjee. Yeah. And Partha says that the definition of tolerance, really, mm. is not just the right to be different, but the right not to explain why one is different. Mm. Mm. Now, if, if that's the case, then how do we deal with groups that maintain that they not only are different, but are superior? that actually refuse the reciprocal act of universalism? Because I mean, in, in a way, I mean, that colors many of the political issues that you've mm-hmm. had to deal with. You're appealing, I think, to a kind of civic yeah, form of identity. Absolutely. But where people refuse that, mm-hmm. um, how far is the obligation of reciprocity?
1: What do we, what do we mean by reciprocity? Like, Well, when we people mean,
0: refuse mm-hmm. to accept the sort of
1: yeah.
0: uh, universal entreaties that you're, that you're extending.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, what well, we are seeing is also happening today, um, to a large extent in the social media, in the internet. I mean, on the one hand, I find it fascinating that it's a very democratic platform. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody, imagine, you can live in a little town, east, west, doesn't matter, and you can be part of a global conversation. I find that fascinating. The possibilities are amazing. And yet, at the same time, there's a lot of hate speech. In uh, you know, all over the internet, people are saying all kinds of things sometimes you know, making websites, pointing fingers, now, how do you deal with that? It's a big question for all of us, and I don't think it's a question that, particularly with regards to internet, I don't think it's a question that the legal system is ready for, because the internet is running faster than, and the legal structure is renewing itself, but coming from you know, lagging behind. What we can do is to develop, expand alternative discourses. So rather than reciprocate, which I I wouldn't know how to do that. But I know how to expand, as best as I can, empathy. You know, this other discourse, which to me is healthier and is is a better world. That's what I'd like to um, work on. You know, this can be done through stories, through art, through scholarly work, through public intellectuals, even tiny little things doesn't matter, but to at least remember and remind the world that that's not the only discourse, that there are other ways of looking at things, and to emphasize those ways. That's the only thing I can do.
0: So many people want to come in. I'm going to go in order, because there's a leg in the middle, then come down to maybe the second row, and here, that's okay.
4: Thank you very much. Um, I wanted you to talk some more about your relations with Sufism and in in particular regarding the 40 rules of love Mm. and how, I'm not sure how aware of it, but you're very much, um, the the popularity of that book and its popularity in North America and in Europe has very much kind of led to a resurgence in Sufi texts, um, Mm. especially amongst young people. And I kind of wanted to talk uh, you to talk a bit more about how you feel about Sufism, and kind of you've been talking about the you know saying you know that we're, that we're not all so different, and even when we are different, it, we should celebrate this, and perhaps you know the kind of bringing of Sufism more into Western culture, where we haven't really acknowledged it so much mm-hmm. and understood it. Um, how do you feel about kind of not necessarily championing that, but kind of putting it forth more? in your work.
1: Thank you. I, I appreciate. I think, you know, when I look at my personal story, my connection with Sufism was such a such an introverted individual journey. But I think that's the case for all kinds of, you know, encounters with mystical thought, you know, mysticisms of all kinds. This could be Jewish mysticism, far eastern, you know, philosophy, this could be Taoism, Christian mysticism, Islamic mysticism, they have so much in common. Amazingly you know, similar quests. The quest is very much universal. Um, the Sufis say like, you know, it's like different brooks or rivers, but all flowing in the same direction, towards the same ocean, towards the same you know, truth. So it doesn't matter after a certain point what we call ourselves, as long as we remember that the quest is you know, very universal. For me, it was, um, it's a dilemma why I became interested in Sufism because I did not grow up in, a, in such a family. Um, I grew up in a very secular, strictly secular environment. Although my grandmother was religious and you know, superstitious in her own ways, but she wasn't a Sufi at all. And I became interested in, in basically Rumi and Shams of Tabriz uh, and also other, others, but always through books. Many things in life were opened up to me through books, it was always through readings. And the more I read, the more I became curious. And that's one of the things it does to you, as much as you learn while you're reading on Sufi philosophy, you also unlearn lots of the things you knew beforehand. And that unlearning is is a very, in my opinion, healthy thing. Because we know so much about so many things, sometimes knowledge can bring its own blindness. Because knowledge creates distances, knowledge hierarchies. We think we know, whereas we know very little. So I was interested in the learning and the unlearning process that comes with Sophie philosophy, and there have been different stages. At the beginning it was more cerebral, more intellectual, then it became more emotional for me. Always, you know, it has been in the background, in my novels, in in some novels more visible. Uh, Only when I, you know, achieved 40 years was I able um, to, to write the 40 rules of love? Maybe there's a, there's a season for everything. But I mean, it's, it's interesting because depending on whom you ask, you might get different answers about Sufism. You might see different Sufi practices. So I'm very cautious about generalizing making generalizations. Maybe the the practices of some Sufi group in Morocco will be very different than another group, let's say in in Turkey or or in India. And that's quite normal because Sufism is very heterogeneous. But what matters is the holistic approach to look for the essence, to see the connections. For the Sufis, uh, life is a circle and each and every one of us is part of that circle. No one and no creature is excluded from that circle. And in a circle, Unlike a triangle, there's no hierarchy. So these are the things that are close to my heart. But after, after that, I think uh, it's, it's a very personal journey. You know? And our interpretations de- very much change on depending on our gaze. How we approach changes the way we interpret the same readings. So it's a very individual journey after that.
0: Uh, can we come down to the front, please? So. That's yeah. your question. <laughs> <laughs> we come down to the front and the middle then in that case. Sorry about that.
2: Uh, are you suggesting a power-free world? How do you see empathy in relation to power, all organizational, institutional power, political power, economic power? I feel like Sufi mysticism does not really address the real issue of power and power-based relationships.
4: Or,
1: I'm so sorry. Power. Oh, power. I'm, I'm very sorry. Okay. Um, no, that I, I, um, I can understand that. I'm not saying that, you know, Sufism is the golden key that opens every door. But I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting philosophy that helps us to look at our egos. Because power is very much about the ego, right? About the self, about the nefs And the belief that we are different than others, we are spirit than others. At the end of the day, it's boils down to the ego. So Sufism tells us beware of your ego, you know, beware of the blindness, of the obstacles, of the walls that the ego is putting in front of you. Instead of questioning other people, always finding faults, you know, with other people, look at yourself, see what you're doing. So it's a very introspective, very self-critical philosophy and very peaceful and this is something that we can learn from. I'm not saying it's the, the answer to all our problems, but I do believe that um, there's beauty in, in learning more about Sufism and, and similar philosophies. It doesn't have to be, as I said, Sufism. Maybe for someone else it's another name, doesn't matter. But um, that kind of self-critical approach, an approach that's very much aware of the limitations of the ego, to me is, um, is worth exploring.
0: Um, Richard Bronk, I'm going to name somebody, this time as a colleague. Thank you. Um, from, in most of Western, Western philosophy, and certainly in modern economics, one of the things that we're assumed to know is ourselves, our identities, our preferences. And yet, as I think you said very beautifully, ourselves are under constant construction. Yeah. And the question I wanted to ask you is, not just for the writer, but for the individual, how much is imagination part of that constant construction of our
5: identity? how much comes from society and from social construction?
1: Oh, thank you, it's a beautiful question. I think um, it, it always amazes me, I mean I'm going to give you an indirect answer perhaps, but it always amazes me when I look, particularly in Turkey, at the people waiting in line you know, for, for my book signings. Um, they come from very different backgrounds. Some of them can seem to be very conservative when you look at the way they dress up, for instance. But then I look at the books they make me sign, and in those books there are all kinds of characters. There are minorities, sexual minorities, ethnic minorities. I do have readers who are very homophobic, and yet at the same time they can empathize with a gay character in a book, or with a transvestite character in a novel. I always found that very, very fascinating. I think we are always much more liberal, if I may say, and open-minded when we are on our own than when we are with other people. When we are with other people in the public space, we be changed, and oftentimes we are not even aware of that change. But it affects us, the energy, the way people talk, and the way we talk affects them, and then it becomes a, you know, Collective reaction to something, you know. But when we're on our own, and that's why I think there's a lot of potential in the art of the novel, in the genre of the novel, because it's the most loneliest art. Benjamin says, you know, it's the loneliest of all art forms because when we're writing, we're very much on our own. There's a lot of solitude that goes in there. And also when we're reading a novel, we're very much on our own, unlike going into, to a concert or watching a movie. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, Imagination is free, or much more free, when we are on our own. The moment we st- we become a public persona, that switch happens very quickly. We curb our imagination, and then we act according to the things we must be doing. You know, the the role. The, it's it's a role that we have internalized. But when we're on our own, when we're dreaming, daydreaming, imagining, reading a story, empathizing, then then the heart and the mind is you know, vast.
0: Yes, gentleman at the back and then gentleman over here.
5: Hi. I'm just wondering if Moscovici and social representations theory have inspired you in writing your novels? Moscovici and social representations theory, and if so, how?
1: can you be a bit more explicit with me
5: sure. because I um, I'm not accusing you for plagiarism but when I look <laughs> sorry, when I look your when I look your uh, writings from Moscovici's perspective who is a well-known uh, scholar in social psychology uh, when I look from his perspective I don't really see anything new and um, Moscovici and social representations theory uh, argues about the collective elaboration of uh, social phenomenon
3: mm-hmm. and
5: dual identity, social constructivism, etc. Mm-hmm. So, I'm just wondering if Thank you. he has inspired you. He and hasn't
1: inspired me, to be honest. Um, however, there might be, of course, common you know things in common. There might be overlapping thoughts. Why not? When you think of it that way, maybe you will find lots of things in common. You know. With a write, between a writer and another philosopher and another political scientist. But in this case, there's no direct influence. Uh, I will tell this with all, in all honesty.
0: I think there's a gentleman there that will come down. I'm, I'm conscious I'm not looking that way, so we'll do that. Yeah, it's it a grey jacket. Mm-hmm.
5: Thank you. Uh, first part of your talk, you described multi- multiple identity perfectly. And I agree what you said. Then when you reflect the gentleman question about uh, universal Mm -hmm. values, Mm -hmm. you describe some universal values, Mm -hmm. which is not actually accepted by some part of the world. Like half of the world, they don't don't follow liberal values. They don't follow the democracy. They have different things. How can, in one hand, you describe the multiple identity and without rule to accept others? a plural society, but same time to draw some uh, values.
1: Thank you. It's a challenging question. I, I, I do understand what you're asking. But let's think about the examples that I mentioned, like human rights, women's rights, or children's rights, not to be abused. I can't think of any women, whether in Afghanistan or Iran or Turkey or Canada or Brazil, doesn't matter, who would say, no, thank you, I don't, I don't need any rights, I'm, I'm happy to be oppressed, I'm happy to be you know, treated as a second citizen. I can't think of any woman who would be happy with that kind of life. It's in our nature. You know, we, we love freedom as human beings. Isn't it part of our nature? Aren't we all looking for love? Aren't we all in need of fulfilling our own you know, natural talents? These are very universal things. I do understand that democracy can have different descriptions depending on where you go, and this is a debate that we need to keep alive. It's not something that we can solve in one day, overnight, and then say, okay, this is the only definition of democracy, that would be wrong. Let's be open, let's discuss Maybe some, in some societies, as you rightly said, democracy might be de- defined in different ways, or perhaps even democracy itself is not a bed of roses. It has its thorns and difficulties. But compared to any other system, because what is the alternative? What are we going to replace it with? So compared with any other system, I think it's our best choice. It still is our best choice. So um, when it comes to issues like human rights, you know, freedom of expression, how can we say... That, you know, well, some people's words should be treated as dangerous and they should not be allowed to speak. Or some books should be burned and should be, you know, banned. I can't say that. Violence is something else because violence directly interferes with another person's right to exist. But words, thoughts, these should be free. And then we should be able to discuss universally. We can have universal discussions as well. So I do respect, I understand these cultural differences, but at the same time, believing in a universal coexistence and universal public space, if I may say that, I think we shouldn't forgive that either. We shouldn't lose our hope about that, because if we do, the alternative is really much, much worse.
0: In the front row, I think, if you... Uh, yes, Hi. Um,
2: I'm not sure if this is a little bit of repetition of what you just said, but yeah. I just wonder if you have a society with total empathy yeah. or understanding of everyone. Mm-hmm. Where where do you get the control? What would what do you see as the control within that? So that mm-hmm. could be, for example, the governmental yeah. uh, institution. For example, in Turkey, the the mm-hmm. the you know the political yeah. change that has happened, yeah. and others. Like how would they? Actually, have to be acting mm. in society? What yeah. do you think? Like yeah.
1: to create that? Thank visual? you. Um, thank you. I, I understand. I, I respect that question. It's, um, h- however, I mean, I'm also thinking let's say I come from Turkey and it's a country that has a very strong state tradition, yeah? like, like in Russia, like in other parts of the world. Perhaps because of my background, I'm more interested in civil society than what the state can offer. I'm more interested in the civil society being vivid, pluralistic and open to discussion and change coming from below, rather than being introduced from above, because, like in many parts of the Middle East, East, uh, even nations like France, we have had we have heard, you know, this thought that change is something that can only be introduced from above or from outside, that the elites, that the intellectuals are the, you know, the, the leading force. I find that kind of approach very, very, and I'm skeptical of that, because there's, there's a lot of looking down upon the people in that kind of approach. That kind of elitism is not something that I sympathize with. And I do believe that change comes from, you know, every society is constantly evolving. No society is static. For many years, as I said, many experts believe that the Muslim world was static. It never was. They thought, even some journalists thought that the Muslim world was just monolithic, you know, just one voice. It never was. And it it isn't today either. So it's constantly evolving, constantly flowing. And I very much believe in, in the change that can come from the civil society rather than you know, the government or the state. Yeah. I mean was,
2: how, do they, how do you see doing that? So I, I agree with that, but how would you manage that? Because you can't... You you can't have, yeah, we, because you have like 80 million people...
1: Of course, and it's, that's why we can't manage it. It's, yeah. it's not something we, we should be managing. No you know, It's not something we should be controlling. Uh, it has its own flow. What we should, I think, be doing is to provide a free space for people to to talk where thoughts are not, you know, dangerous or forbidden. And then, um, I mean, I am optimistic that we can achieve a certain dialogue, you know, Habermas writes extensively about this, that public discourse, of course it won't happen that easily, but if the more you open the ground for that, and let different minorities talk about their differences, different ideological groups talk about their differences without forgetting the respect for the other, then something beneficial can come out of that. I prefer that to a model in which change is introduced from above by a certain military elite or a political elite who think they know better than the masses. I prefer the change that comes from the civil society.
0: You've already got the microphone, I think.
1: Thank
5: you. I have uh, read your novel, The 40 Rules of Love, in both Turkish and in English, and they have very different flavors. That is, what's your attitude to translation, and what's your attitude to using translators, and what should
1: a translation achieve? Beautiful. Thank you. Tough question. <laughs> it's a really interesting question. It's a very interesting question. What I do and I, what I've been doing for the last nine, nine years now is I write my novels in English first. And then I take a step back, um, a professional translator takes it from me, the manuscript, and translates it into Turkish. I can't do that myself for two reasons. Because um, I think it's a completely different talent. I have a lot of respect for tr- the, the, the process of translation. I don't think it's enough to know, you know, to speak two languages or three languages to to do translations. It's it's not enough. You need to have a different eye, a different formation, a different... It's it's a completely different creativity. And the second reason why I don't do that is because if I were to translate the book myself, I would end up somewhere else. You know, somebody needs to control me. Because every time we read our stories, if I were writing this now, I would like to add new things. So the editor takes it from me and then I can't change it anymore. You know? Um, So it's good that someone else is doing that translation. But when the translation is over, what I do is I take it back, and I'm very grateful to the translators I've been working closely with. I take that translation and I rewrite it. Because my Turkish has... um, if I may say this, it has a specific flavor and vocabulary is very important to me. I use old Ottoman words in addition to new Turkish words. I use Sufi terminology, mystical expressions. So it's a very, very rich vocabulary and there's a certain rhythm and poetry. For that to be there, I need to rewrite. Now, I don't believe in a one-to-one translation unless we are you know, strictly... Um, translating from historical documents. Let's say if if you're translating a historical document, then of course you need to do it a one-to-one translation. But in fiction, in in storytelling, I believe that we should let the language guide us. Every language has its own rhythm, has its own music, has its own labyrinth. They're not the same thing. And particularly when I compare Turkish and English, they're so different in Turkish I mean, the verbal structure, the grammatical structure is like a train, based on agglutination. We keep adding suffixes. With one word, I can say, you know, that that translation of one word into English could be six six words, because of the suffixes. So it's a very different grammatical structure, they can't be a one-to-one translation. Lots of inverted sentences in Turkish, yeah, the place of the verb is very different. Uh, And I respect such differences. What matters to me is to retain the story, not to change the story. Of course the content is always the same, but the way I tell the story will change. There have been some novelists who have changed the ending of their books in each different language. You know? (laughs) Honestly, some uh, Balkan writers did that, like the ending in Greek is more optimistic, the ending in Turkish. I I haven't done that yet, but I understand why they're doing it.
0: I think the French lieutenant's woman provided two endings, didn't it? And in the movie too. Can I just sort of come in here? Because I found that a really interesting question and response my questions are mm-hmm. a lot more prosaic I'm sorry but I was just at a session some of you might have been before with John Lanchester mm-hmm. who like you he writes fiction and nonfiction mm-hmm. and he said the, you know, the, the great liberation of writing fiction is that you didn't have to get the facts right obviously <laughs> uh, but when you are writing fiction you have to pay a lot more attention to the prose and he said that he, he set himself the target of writing 500 words a day, mm-hmm. which I thought was not too tough, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, obviously, he writes a lot better words than I do. Um, I just wonder about your own approach because you've, you know, I think I said you've written eleven books of novels and of, of non-fiction. And you said at the beginning of your talk that you don't know what your characters are going to do eight pages in. So, could you just share with us a little bit more some some of your thoughts about mechanics of writing and Thank how you, you go about it?
1: Thank you. Um, I, I know there, you know, many many writers who kind of set up set a goal for themselves and they say every day, let's say between 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock, I will be sitting and just writing no matter what. Um, and I respect that, but I'm not like that, I've never been like that. For me there's a pendulum, um, when the pendulum is here, it means I start writing a novel and I just go deep into it, day and night I can write anytime. time, doesn't matter, You know, I can just wake up in the middle of the night and write. Um, But it's a very intense process and it's a very self-destructive process. It's not only about creating something, you're also destroying things. And I find that fascinating. It's something that we never, almost never talk about. You know, we we do build sentences but we also erase sentences, delete sentences. We also, it's a very, you know, physically, psychologically, it can be kind of really self-destructive. That process is very intense. Now when the book is over, when the novel is over, I give it to my editor, then there's a depression. I'm always depressed between two books, and I go to the other end, and that pendulum, when the pendulum is on the other side, I'm a more social, normal human being. I socialize, you know, do other things, learn from life, and keep doing that. When I'm interested in a story, I start researching, reading, reading, reading. That there comes a point when I stop reading and back the pendulum is here, and again intensely You're in, in that process, so it's very. Um, it's, I mean, every day is different. Yeah.
0: Sure. So, I mean, to write a book of this length, how long did it take you? The actual physical act of writing. This what took me. To
1: um, well, with the research, I think I would say. 14 months.
0: A long time. Yes, we'll take here and then we'll go over to this side.
1: Thank you.
2: Uh, What inspires you the most while writing? It Mm -hmm. might be too many things you might say. It's actually a mixture of place, my mood, etc. But can you say something that actually inspires you the most?
1: Thank you. I mean, it's going to be an obvious answer, but uh, honestly, life inspires us all the time. Like even, for instance, right now we're talking The things we talk about, maybe tomorrow it's gonna while I'm writing it will inspire me. It will help me to rethink certain things. So I'm very very open to that. But I do believe that people who write or who want to become writers need to read a lot. There's no other way. And in Turkey I find it a bit ironic like there are more poets than poetry readers. I mean everybody is (laughs) writing poetry but nobody is reading poetry. And we have to read, there's no other way. Um, And I do sometimes meet young people who want to become writers, but they say they don't have that much time to read. That's impossible, uh, because it's it's our fuel, it's our food, it's our water. So reading a lot, writing a lot, but also not forgetting that the world itself is a book that needs to be read, you know, reading life, reading the signs, uh, listening to people, I do believe that storytellers need to be very good um, listeners. We always talk about how you know, good they need to observe, but more than observing, I think listening. Because listening does two things to you. We listen to what people are saying, but also how they're saying what they're saying. So I talk with people all the time, you know, cab drivers, people on the street, east, west. I listen to what they're saying, what they're complaining about, and you, we learn from each other a lot.
0: Go up that side. Okay, There's absolutely. The young man in the okay. front row, and then we'll work our, work our way up. Sorry. Yeah.
4: Um,
5: hi. Um, ma'am, I was born in a small town in India where a sense of individualism is, the individual identity is very much shaped by uh, the social identity. Um, and as I grew older, I've, I've, and as I've been understanding myself as an individual, um, I find myself being drawn to uh, atheism as a belief system. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to know your, um, what your thoughts on atheism as a, as a belief system is. Oh,
1: thank you. Um, just, just one little thing maybe before atheism about individuality and individualism. It always uh, intrigues me to see, you know, as we travel um, westward, when you go into bookstores, when you look at the sections, autobiographies and biographies are huge in numbers. And as I travel towards the other direction, like when I go to Turkey, biographies diminish. In the bookstores, they're like maybe two shelves. Autobiographies, only one shelf. Um, and the reason why I'm saying this is because the, uh, the notion that, you know, we are individuals with stories to tell to the world, that individuals are important in shaping history, making history, making a difference, um, that changes as we move from one culture to another and I do believe that we need more biographical and autobiographical works in uh, the non-Western parts of the world as well. You know, More books published in that regard. Now coming to atheism, I am not an atheist myself, I am, I'm, um, I'm, uh, if I, I'm, I'm cautious about these concepts, I'm not very comfortable with these concepts but I will use it, I'm a more spiritual person. I'm not interested in organized religion at all. And people, these are nuances that it's very difficult to talk about in Turkey because people think if you're interested in religious philosophy, oh, then it means you're religious. There's no such thing. I think whether we're religious, uh, I'm sorry, whether we're atheist or agnostic or spiritual or religious, doesn't matter. The questions that religious philosophy asks should be relevant for all of us, because at the end of the day, religions talk about, uh, and religious philosophy talks about, you know, what are we doing here, right now? What does it mean to be a human being? You know, is there a bigger meaning behind this? Is it all coincidental, or is there a bigger meaning behind coincidences? You know, what do we do with death? How do we interpret death? How do we interpret body, soul, life? I think all those questions matter a lot, but we don't have to be religious in order to be interested in these questions. For me, you know, being—I mean—I can't think of a novelist not being interested in these questions because if we're telling stories, it means we are interested in, you know, how we interpret death, how we interpret having children, right? How we interpret having roots. Um, I, how do you interpret creativity? Is there another being in this universe who is stronger than you? Are you connected with that being? You know, all these questions are very intriguing questions for each and every one of us. So although the answers might not be common, I do believe that the questions we are asking, whether we're atheists or not, are very much uh, common. And I do very much respect the right of people who are not believers to say, I am not a believer. I do very much respect their right to say that, and I find it interesting to, to have dialogues, philosophical dialogues especially, uh, among people who are believers and non-believers. What I'm not that perhaps happy with is sometimes we have atheist intellectuals making, some of them, huge generalizations about all kinds of religious people, you know, saying, well, the religious people are like that, like this, Again, that kind of generalization is something that I'm not very happy with because there's, there's so much variety, really. I mean, I, just, just a little example. I, as I said, I grew up with my grandmother, but there was a time when I also was with my father's mother. Now, these two women, when you, at the first glance, they're in the same generation. They're both Turkish. They're both Muslim in the same country, right? They can't be more alike. But their interpretation of Islam was so different. Now, from outside, you say uh, they're both religious people. They have the same interpretation, completely different interpretations. My my father's uh, mother, grandmother, on my paternal side, her interpretation was much more based on fear, you know, God watching you, hell, heaven, prohibitions. And I was really slightly traumatized when I came back. Now, my grandmother's, maternal grandmother's interpretation has nothing to do with that. It's based on love. And it's just an amazing other interpretation. But at the first glance, these are you know, both very much alike, very religious women. I guess my point is, sometimes atheist uh, intellectuals make huge generalizations about people of belief. We should be wary of that, too, I think.
0: Um, yes, sort of fourth row from the back. <laughs>
2: Uh, your uh, your perspective about constructing an individual identity and holding some values is very inspiring to build something but on a personal level if you chart your life where do you think you're headed what's your goal oh. what do you want to achieve what, what, what's a tough
1: what a difficult question you know Do I know it? What's your (laughs) reflection? Yeah, thank you. I mean, on a personal level, I look at myself and I see myself basically as a storyteller. I love to tell stories. I've, you know, I grew up with stories. I I believe in the need to bridge the gap between written culture, which is very male-dominated, and oral culture, which is in the hands of women and generations of women. I like to bring it together as much as I can. Um, I love, if I can in any way, you know, connecting stories from West and East. I do believe in connections, as I said, in in, in empathy as well. Um, But this is what I do. And when I look at the future, nobody can, you know, nobody can, can predict, but all I know, all I can say is, for all of us, I believe, what really matters is to love what we're doing. It makes a huge difference. You know, at the essence of Everything we might be complaining about being an academic, we might be complaining about being a writer, an artist. You know, our writers especially are always complaining. But at the root, are we enjoying this? Do we really love this? Because there is no other way it can be done. Um, so in every little thing in life that we achieve, not to, you know, if it's a burden, if it's a chore imposed on our shoulders, then the outcome will be different. If it comes from here, from our hearts, if we can't stop it, if we can't stop doing it, sometimes even despite ourselves, that kind of passion, that kind of love, is something that I very much believe in. So I would like to keep telling stories as long as I don't uh, lose that passion.
0: We've got time for two or three last questions, so sort of work our way down. Um, You had your hand up first, the gentleman with the beard just there. And yeah, just in, and then we'll go to the lady four behind. You really particularly want to pick out? I've got
5: uh, two brief questions. First of all, uh, uh, the honour killings is something is basically is very controversial. And do you think honour killings is related to a cultural issue or religious issue? Mm-hmm. And secondly, uh, I. Read, I think, one of your interviews that you mentioned about that the relationship between novel and photographic image. You first think a photograph, and then dig into the uh, novel story. And I, I find it very fascinating. Can you you mention about that?
1: Thank you. Thank you. I'll start. You know. Very briefly, with the second question, oftentimes it's through images that we think it's a very visual process. Like when I was writing the bastard of Istanbul, the first scene of this woman, you know, wearing a miniskirt and high heels, and one of her heels is broken under the rain, you know, walking in Istanbul. That was the it just came to me that picture. Uh, I saw her like in a movie, and I was intrigued. Like, who is this woman? And you start chasing that woman, you start chasing that woman's stories there's something very irrational, almost mystical about the process of creativity. this could be you know composing a you know a song, this could be writing poetry doesn't matter writing a novel. somehow we are not these rational, logical people anymore, and as <coughs> if you're using different parts of your brain or as if you're connected to other maybe sources of energy. I don't know how to explain it, Um, but I'm very intrigued by that you know mystical process. In my opinion it's mystical and the reason why I say it's mystical, I don't think we're in in control of our texts. I really don't think the writer is the you know architecture, the architect, the, the puppeteer who controls all the characters from above. Oftentimes, the characters, they create themselves, and we just follow them, trying to catch up with them. That's, that's a very interesting, really, and ve- a very irrational um, process. I forgot your first question.
0: On killing. On oh, no killing,
1: yeah. Uh, I, um, I don't think it's a religious thing at all. I don't think it's at the heart of, you know, sometimes people say, oh, Islamic cultures uh, have this, and they make it sound as if Islam has this. There's no such thing. It's a, it's a cultural thing, it's a social thing, it's something we learn because what makes us think that you know, a woman's sexuality has to be controlled by the men around her, what makes us think what makes us think that, um, you know, let me give you some, some examples, actually this just happened a year and a half ago it happened in Turkey, an Armenian honor killing took place and people were shocked because many people thought you know this would happen only among the Kurds or in, in this or that tribe or th- there's no such thing. It's a matter of our upbringing and I think the way we raise our sons is very problematic and we need to face this because we treat our sons as if they were the sultans in the house. Yeah? I have seen so many families I grew up, you know, among so many families in which the boys and the fathers don't even bring a glass of water from the kitchen, but in the meantime the daughters are always setting up the table, you know, cleaning the table. Why does it have to be like that? You know, small things from daily life. Mothers, unfortunately, as mothers, I think our role is huge in the continuity in the in the, in the perpetuation of patriarchy. And it always amazes me and saddens me to see women who themselves have suffered a lot also make other women suffer, especially their daughters-in-law. So then we can never break this chain. I mean, there's lots of things to question. All I know is, where there's um, a very patriarchal culture, women cannot be happy, okay, but men cannot be happy either. Because it's amazingly... You know, it's like a straight jacket, masculinity. There's only one version of masculinity. If you deviate from that, you're mocked, ridiculed. It's not easy to be a man in a patriarchal society. And it's definitely not easy to be a young man in a patriarchal society.
0: I think that we've probably reached our last question. So the lady with the glasses on her head. Um,
4: hello. On um, the theme of... Um Biography and journeys. Is this on? Yeah, yeah. Could just speak okay. up a little bit. Biography. Yeah, on on the theme of biography and journeys, I just wanted to ask you two, two biographical questions. Yeah. Um, first, I guess uh, between becoming a, a story a novelist and uh, being a doctoral, p- in a doctoral student in, in yeah. political science, yeah. where did that we How did that leap come about? Uh, <laughs> I obviously you. have a personal interest. And secondly. Um, <laughs> Uh, you said that the process of writing is obviously very consuming yeah. um, and a, p- a pendulum, right? And so, as a person, a spouse, a mother, um, a member of a, many communities of belonging, how do you reconcile um, the consuming process and do you believe in the idea of a work-life balance? Or, um, or
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, I've uh, had an <coughs> interdisciplinary academic background. I was graduated from international relations and then I did my master's degree in women's studies, gender studies, and we were the first students in Turkey because women's studies was a new you know, department, um, graduate program, and then for PhD I moved on to political philosophy because I've always been interested in political philosophy. Basically what I did was also you know, cultural studies, um, but mostly interdisciplinary work, work that brings you know, sources from completely different backgrounds and women's studies of course makes that possible, you know, has that kind of interdisciplinary nature. I learned a lot from the academia, I have a lot of respect for the academic world. I understand it's not an easy marriage, you know, this, um, between literature and, and academic world, it's not an easy marriage at all because um, <coughs> the, the way you approach things is different, the lifestyles, they're different. However, we can learn a lot, and it just keeps my curiosity alive. At the end of the day, I don't see myself as, a, as an academic, but as someone who has a lot of respect for you know, academic work. So that's in the, in the background for me. And I think um, when we teach, we learn a lot from our students. It's an amazing you know, mutual two-way road, because the questions they ask, and you need to, you need to be tuned with the, with the world. You need to keep reading. You need to constantly update yourself, because you can't be just using a text you used 15 years ago and keep repeating that, because the world is changing. So there's a, there's a challenge in that, which, which I also like. As novelists, we are very self-centered beings. And the danger in that is, first of all, we think we're gods. Um, huge egos, high inflated egos. So it's no wonder we don't like each other. You won't see novelists who speak nicely about each other. We are very much in our little cocoons. Now, academia or writing for newspapers, these are things that break those bubbles for me and help me to you know, be connected with, with the world, renew myself and realize that well, I need to keep learning. I need to, you know, keep reading. So I like I I really like that uh, challenge. Now a bigger challenge is your second question, you know, being a mother and the writer, and I don't find it easy. I find it fascinating. I think it's uh, it's beautiful. It's inspiring and we learn so much from our children, definitely, because the questions they ask so basic questions that we have forgotten because a child has amazing curiosity. A novelist has to have curiosity in life, in little things. Like if you're walking in a you know, narrow street in Istanbul just to ask you know, what's behind that um, inscription. You, you, read, um, you look at the street's name and you say, why this name? You know, asking little, little questions. The moment we lose that, we lose our artistic creativity. So children help you to connect with that curiosity. I love that. Um, and I I really find it very rewarding. On the other hand, there are challenges, especially for women writers, for women scholars, for women journalists, I think more so for women than for men. That's the truth of it. And um, there was a time when I went through a very severe depression and I wrote a book called Black Milk out of that. There was a strong postpartum depression uh, that taught me a lot because you know, when you are depressed, the good thing is you're so depressed you have to sit down and reconstruct yourself. And hopefully the new self will be better than the old self. So it has a lot of potential. Uh, but Black Milk was a is a book in which you know, I make a lot of fun of myself and I'm very critical of myself and it helps me to reconstruct myself. But it, it happened through a depression that came with, with motherhood.
0: I'm really sorry. that I, I think we're going to have to end it there. There is a reception afterwards and then there's some music by... The House Ban the Functionalists. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to end except to say that I think the fact that there are so many people wanting to ask further questions obviously speaks to the fact that your own biography is incredibly interesting, your achievements in fiction and in non-fiction and the eloquence of the answers, but I I just didn't buy the last bit that you said about ego because this might sound rather bold since we've only just met, but uh, I thought that we were in the presence tonight of somebody uh, really sharing uh, herself in a very non-egotistical way and I deeply enjoyed the conversation that you had with the audience. Thank you very much for being with us tonight.